0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, challenge the status quo. It's, it's never is-
1: easy to yeah. challenge the accepted leaders
0: In today's episode, I interview Dr. Holly Cummings. She is an OBGYN gyn who was a co-author on a recent book published by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists called, Your Pregnancy and Childbirth, Month to Month. And I greatly appreciate the conversation we had because rather than having her summarize the book, which each of you can read, what I wanted to do is dig into some of the why behind the decisions and recommendations to really help women gain that perspective. And she was incredible in answering some of my tough questions. And if you do like the episode, please do rate it and write a review. And definitely check out the show notes too, where I put links on things that are covered in the podcast or I don't have time to cover on the podcast. And I also do the same on social media, which I will be active on this summer. So again, thanks for your support. And now let's talk to Dr. Cummings.
1: I think that you know historically, you know, I wasn't around Decades ago, when somebody decided that you know we could just see people at six weeks after delivery and everything would be okay. But there is a historic basis for the idea that most people have completed their physical recovery by six weeks. Certainly, people will talk about that maybe that has some tradition um, from even you know very a few centuries ago in the Catholic Church. Um, and antiquated ideas around when somebody could resume physical activity, um, including intercourse after delivery. And it does hold true that a lot of people are physically, if they've had a childbirth tear, um, most people have healed by six weeks, but not everybody. And there's a lot more to the postpartum time period than just has your tear healed and have your stitches uh, dissolved. And so I think over the last few years, we've really realized that there's a lot of care that still needs to happen um, in the postpartum time period. And we're sort of calling it now the fourth trimester of pregnancy, so the 12 weeks after delivery. And there's been increasing recognition that, um, you know, people still need a lot of assistance. Um, There can be problems such as high blood pressure um, that can arise even after a baby is born. If somebody has had diabetes during pregnancy, that can still be a concern Uh, for everybody. We really worry about um, their emotions and their mood postpartum, and as well as the physical recovery. Um, And plenty of people aren't physically healed by six weeks. Um, And if you wait till six weeks to have your first contact with someone after delivery, then you may have missed opportunities to help them heal from all these different aspects. And then certainly breastfeeding as well. If you've waited till six weeks to ask someone how breastfeeding is going, if someone's having trouble, you've, you've lost the opportunity to help. In the last few years, uh, we as a, as a group of physicians, obstetrician, gynecologists, along with other uh, medical providers who help take care of pregnant patients have really increased our emphasis on the postpartum time period and this, this missing fourth trimester and tried to improve the care there. And so I do think, you know, it's really great that ACOG has come out. We've actually come out with guidance in writing that that we should touch base with our patients at those time periods that you mentioned. So like within the first two to three weeks, again at six, and then again at 12 as needed. Oh, so
0: it is at six as well. So three and six,
1: it's on and on. Okay. The, the trimester is a 12 week time period and you should have at least two checkpoints in there
0: when these guidelines are put in place, how do all the OBGYNs know about them? Because it's one thing for it to be written, and then there's another thing to change mindset.
1: OBGYN is an interesting field. Most OBGYNs in this country um, do belong to ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. I don't have an exact statistic, but compared to other professional medical societies, a, a larger proportion of Practicing OBGYNs in this country do belong to ACOG. And we all, um, in order to be board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, we undergo annual uh, board certification updates. And some of that process involves making sure that we're up to date with ACOG's um, guidance. So ACOG publishes two different types of written guidance uh, called uh, practice bulletins and committee opinions. And those are available on uh, their website, also through medical publications. And it's our responsibility as board-certified OBGYNs to stay up to date with um, those recommendations.
0: Would you think it fair to say, just because I, early in my career, I was in training and development and in my I have to, uh, whenever there's changes, I have to go through like a formal training where I read it, I go through it. I have to read and sign that I know that it happened and you know it's extremely regulated. Is it that regulated or should we say that women, if your doctor is not doing this, be proactive, take a copy of the page in this book of what it says for the guideline if they're not going to see you and say that this is what ACOG is saying and maybe they just haven't had their update yet or read the guidance clearly, but what would you advise you know, women to do? Because you know, I do have concern. I mean, I guess, I, again, I come from a training background. I used to be a pharmaceutical sales rep. I know that these doctors have so much information they have to remember, and this is a mm-hmm. huge one because sure. it could impact the
1: life of the baby and mom. Absolutely. I think there's a wide variety of, of practice settings in this country. Some patients are, or I'm sorry, some physicians are based at tertiary care academic centers. Uh, Other people are in community practice, solo practice. Um, Some people practice in very rural settings um, with very low resources. And so there is going to be a a, a variety of, of practice patterns and practice settings. However, sort of the commitment we've all made as OBGYNs, as women's health providers, is that we are trying to do the right thing by our patients at all times. And so I do think it's reasonable for a patient to come to her care provider and say, look, this is what I understand the recommendations to be. Is this what I should expect from from you know my experience with you? And if not, why? I think ACOG has done a lot with really taking into consideration all those different practice patterns. So for instance, it's very hard to mandate you must be seen by your um, provider three weeks after childbirth. It might not be possible for the medical practice and it actually might not even be possible for the patient to get to the office, but allowing for the opportunity of a telephone contact, a telemedicine visit, you know, that broadens the opportunities. So I think it's, I always want my patients to be informed about what options are. And I really like it when patients come to me and say, well, this is what I heard, or this is what I read, or, you know, this is what I think my interpretation of what ACOG says, can we talk about that? And I always encourage people to do that. And I think providers should be open to it. It does sometimes take more time, um, you know, in our conversations with the patient, but that's, that's not a bad thing in itself. I would love to be able to spend hours with every single one of my patients. And sometimes the practice setting doesn't allow for it. But when it's important, we should be able to be able to take that time with our patients.
0: Okay. no, thank you for explaining that, because I I think what I really want women to understand, and it's so great to talk to clinicians and get that perspective, because there's the reality of the day to day, like you all have so much on your plates and the patients, they're coming from a place of I don't know what I don't know or hearing things from different social media outlets and just really figuring out how to have that collaboration is something that I really try to reinforce in the podcast. So thank you for that. The next Mm -hmm. piece of it is how does when ACOG creates these guidelines, how does that translate into what is covered as a benefit with insurance companies? So is there a process in place so that they're aware because, you know, that's a real sticking point. So if you could just maybe explain that piece too, because, They need to be caught up to what your guidelines are.
1: And, you know, it's certainly a reality in this country that, you know, insurance coverage sometimes dictates what we're able to do. But part of the benefit of having recommendations like this in writing as an official stance of ACOG is so that we can, on the flip side, come back to the insurance companies and say, look, this is the right thing to do for our patients. Um, And so you should cover it. And so we've seen, you know, since these recommendations for that uh, sort of three-week check-in postpartum have come out from ACOG, there are um, more insurance companies covering it. Um, Historically, as part of the, so pregnancy care in the United States for a few decades now has been covered under what we call a global package. And so there's a single payment that the insurance company makes to the OBGYN or, or delivery provider after delivery and so that covers all nine months of prenatal care and the delivery and six weeks of postpartum care. And um, because of those historic guidelines, the six weeks of postpartum care was listed as a single office visit, um, which was sort of, you know, it tied our hands as providers. Well, we can't see everybody in extra time if we're not going to get paid for it. Um, That's not fair to us as well. And so by having this recommendation in writing, we've been able to come back to the insurance companies and say, this is the right thing to do for our patients, therefore you should also cover it. Um, And so we're starting to see that with some of the um, payers now that they are covering that additional visit, which is great. And that's how we like slowly move the needle for everybody. It's great to have books like this that you just research as needed. I
0: did not know about this. And Again, so many things happen when you have a kid. So maybe this happened, but I don't remember this being told to me. So I at least wanted to call it out in case others are in this um, situation. And I would have thought the opposite because breastfeeding, the milk produces all of what the baby needs. And so I was very surprised to hear that if you're breastfeeding, it's important to supplement the baby with vitamin D. But Mm -hmm. if you are using formula, you don't have to. Do you mind just talking a little bit and and also iron? So it's not just the the vitamin D, but also iron. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I was so surprised and I just want to make sure people have what they need when they have their baby.
1: Sure, absolutely. You know, breast milk is absolutely a complete form of nutrition for human babies. And we um, support exclusive breastfeeding um, and meeting everybody's breastfeeding goals. But we do know from uh, breast milk analysis that vitamin D is the one thing that breast milk does not contain enough of. Um, under our normal diet. Now what's interesting is I don't know that we know is this a product of the modern you know 21st century industrial diet or is this something that really, you know evolutionarily was always a problem? So I don't have the answer there. But it is true that um, formula, because of that formula has been um, supplemented with enough vitamin D. but breast milk does not um, contain enough vitamin D generally. And so we do recommend breastfeeding patients to um, either supplement the baby with vitamin D or alternatively, the adult um, breastfeeding person can take extra vitamin D supplementation. And that is what allows enough vitamin D to get into the, ba- into the breast milk and to the baby. And so the um, lactating person can either take uh, an extra vitamin D, like vitamin that you just get over the counter, um, or generally pediatricians will prescribe um, vitamin D drops for the baby. I was personally really bad at both of them. So I attempted to do both. I had vitamin D capsules for myself and the drops for the baby. And some days I did one and some days I did the other. And I figured between the combo, we were getting enough, but it's hard. Thank you for being vulnerable and being honest. Cause it's true.
0: Like one of the things I have learned is good enough is good enough. Um, Oh, absolutely. You just do the best you can every day, right? I say that to so many people, best I can every day. with children for sure. My son hears it from me a lot. The, the next uh, postpartum is Kegels. So I've had the fortune of interviewing a few folks who do pelvic floor physical therapy and pelvic floor rehabilitation. And one of the ahas that I had is around the right Kegels. And so when I was reading this section, I was sparking to see what what does ACOG say about Kegels? And what I learned is that it depends on what is happening with the pelvic floor, because if you do what most people think of as the Kegels, and that's not why you're having the issue, it can actually make things worse. So I was curious about your thoughts and perhaps if um, there's some considerations for potential revisions of what's described here, because I think that that's a really, really important point.
1: Yeah. So I think the Kegel exercises as described here you know, are correct, and that's generally how we counsel people, but I do agree that they're not necessarily for everyone. So one of the things to talk about with your provider at your postpartum visit is, have I healed physically? Do I have any ongoing pain, would I benefit from um, pelvic floor physical therapy? And I know the pelvic floor physical therapist would say everybody would benefit from physical therapy. And I'm of the same mindset. Um, And I refer lots of people to pelvic floor PT. Um, I'm aware that in other countries, it's sort of a routine postpartum follow-up. And I do think there's growing awareness that You know, getting people in early after childbirth can help with so much of the physical recovery, the muscular spasms that can happen and the long-term pain. Um, And so I do think it's really good. And I agree that if some people have sort of depending on what their concerns are, doing Kegels in this way might not be the right thing. And so certainly if you're trying Kegels at home and you're having more pain, then, you know, don't keep doing that. Seek help. Um, ask for a referral to uh, pelvic floor PT.
0: I did one interview with a woman who recently wrote a book about urinary incontinence and there's just all these things that can happen and you know when we live in our own body we become very used to what is. We may not always know until something really bad happens that it probably could have been caught earlier um, so outside of the luxury of being able to go to a pelvic floor physical therapist in all cases, are there things people should look for outside of just pain that maybe should be a warning sign of probably not a grin and bear it kind of moment? This is a go see your doctor kind of moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So any sort of incontinence, and by that we mean leaking, um, leaking anything that you don't want to be leaking. So that can be leaking urine, leaking stool, or leaking gas. So if you don't have control of those bodily functions, you should absolutely seek medical attention. It can be a sign that the muscles haven't healed properly um, after delivery, or maybe if you had stitches, um, additional healing needs to get to um, take place. And these are things that the earlier they can be identified, the better the outcomes are at fixing them. And sometimes it's a combination of Uh, physical therapy. Sometimes it involves surgical procedures, um, but you really want to have that very detailed um, evaluation, either by your childbirth provider or OBGYN provider, um, or there are specialists within the field of gynecology, often referred to as urogynecologists, who uh, specialize um, specifically in the pelvic floor musculature.
0: Okay. Thank you. And when you say um, it's happening, should it be even like the first time? Because there is healing after birth. And I could totally see us saying, oh, I just gave birth. No big deal. This happens. So would it be from the get-go or like if it's happening just a few days later or a couple of weeks later, like when should someone be concerned?
1: I agree that there is um It's very common to see leaking, particularly urinary leaking for the first few weeks after delivery. Um, And that can be whether somebody has a vaginal birth or a cesarean delivery, because, you know, the pelvic and the the pelvis and the pelvic muscles have just gone through a lot. And so it takes some time for strength and sensation to recover. But if by the time of a six week or certainly a 12 week check-in, you're still having that leaking, you should mention it. I would say even sooner if you're having any fecal incontinence, so stool incontinence or uh, flatus, or what we call gas incontinence. So if you're leaking stool or gas, you should let your provider know sooner. And it might be that the answer you get is, okay, like, you know, message received, I still want you to watch it for two weeks, but at least it's on everybody's radar. The other symptoms I think about are in addition to pain or leaking, I think about um, like a pressure sensation or people will describe a heaviness um, in the vagina, or certainly if you feel any tissue bulging out that didn't used to bulge out, that's a classic symptom. That's sort of the definition of prolapse. And so that deserves a dedicated exam as well. And again, oftentimes over the first few weeks to months um, after delivery, it all resolves, but sometimes it doesn't. And so you want to be proactive.
0: By the way, just a a quick uh, note too, I forgot to mention we were talking about breastfeeding is you all have a great baby friendly checklist to make Mm -hmm. sure that your hospital is baby friendly. Um, And yeah, so I I think people should check that out as well. So you guys have a lot of great checklists in there. So thank you so Mm -hmm. much for for doing that. Then the next thing is around, uh, so we're gonna totally go backwards, induction. One of the things through my fertility journey and just doing so much reading, I've really become fascinated with holistic care. And I I, um, know that Pitocin is often used for induction. And I was fascinated when someone was telling me, why don't you try raspberry leaf tea and dates? And if you can believe it, I don't know if you've seen it, there is actually an abstract on For dates. dates. Yeah. I couldn't. I almost fell over. I'm like, you're kidding me. (laughs) And honestly, I did it. My son was born seven days early, by the way. I was also doing acupuncture. But I'm just curious around, you know, your thoughts and you know what ACOG their position is around trying to plan in advance because what I've heard, and again, please validate because you're the doctor and I'm reading information. And sometimes, as you know, it's hard to figure out what's fact or fiction. So I'm, I'm going to leverage your expertise here. But if you're using Pitocin, it could be more painful. But if it's your body's naturally ready, it's a much better delivery. And the dates and the raspberry leaf tea to clarify is like days weeks in advance, it's not something you do the day of. So as a substitute for Pitocin. So can you just give perspective on that whole piece of why someone has to be induced, why it's Pitocin, are there alternatives, do you you believe in the alternatives or what are the watch outs on those alternatives? Can you just maybe outline
1: that please? Sure, You know, let's start with why might somebody need to be induced. I think when we think about pregnancy as a natural process, eventually at some point, your body will go into labor on its own. The issue arises if there are reasons that it would be better to deliver, to not wait for the body to do it on its own. I work with medical students, and I was once taught this, and I also always um, teach the medical students. When we think about prenatal care, historically, it was done for um, three major reasons. It was to identify sort of three big problems. One is, blood pressure problems, what we now call preeclampsia. But what people knew even hundreds of years ago could be um, what was termed toxemia of pregnancy. So, you know, everything seemed to be fine. And then somebody got really puffy. They couldn't measure blood pressure centuries ago, but horrible things like seizures could happen. um, You know, obviously not good outcomes. And we now know that that's a process called preeclampsia. Another big thing that has always historically um, been part of prenatal care is looking for diabetes. So hundreds of years ago, you couldn't check your, um, you know, prick your finger and check the sugar in your blood. But people knew that, that if somebody had sweet tasting or sweet smelling urine, it was a sign that there was too much sugar in the system and that could cause pregnancy problems. And then the third thing is stillbirth. And stillbirth is not something that, you know, obviously it's sort of the most tragic thing that can happen. And it's something that we want to prevent if we can. And so we know that if somebody stays pregnant on their own for as long as possible, yes, eventually the body will go into labor, but bad things could happen along the way. And so we want to be judicious about making sure that those bad things don't happen without intervening too much. And so, you know, in the absence of a medical problem in either the pregnant patient or the fetus, we generally don't necessarily recommend induction without, you know, a good uh, reason or a conversation with your care provider. Um, one of those reasons is being overdue. And so we know that, yes, eventually your body will go into labor, but the longer you stay pregnant past your due date, unfortunately, the risk of stillbirth can go up. And so that's probably the most common reason that people may be having the conversation with their care providers about, you know, should I be induced and why and when. I believe in the book it talks about, and patients may be, familiar with an increasing frequency to induce um, patients at 39 weeks, or at least talk about um, inducing people at 39 weeks, sort of what we call electively. Um, And this came out of a study um, that was done here in the United States a few years ago at multiple medical centers. It was called the ARRIVE trial. And what it showed was that um, if you induce patients who otherwise didn't have medical problems, if you induce them at 39 weeks, they had lower rates of C-section and lower rates of a few other outcomes like um, preeclampsia and stillbirth than if you let the patient stay pregnant and wait till they went into labor on their own historically, we tried not to induce people, again, if there wasn't a good reason, because we worried that the process of inducing them could increase the C-section rate. And so what this study showed is that uh, that's not true. So it did not increase the C-section rate if you were induced. And so it has sort of given us the permission to say, if you would like to be induced, we know that this is probably not harmful to you. I can't speak for all OBGYNs in the country, but I can say that when I talk to my own patients, I don't talk to them about induction at 39 weeks as a, as a way of um, decreasing C-section rates or decreasing preeclampsia rates. but I say if it's something you're interested in, it's I feel like it's safe. Whereas before, you know five, 10 years ago, I would say, I think you might be, you know, you know, ask, you know setting yourself up for a C-section unnecessarily. And so it just allows one more option for my patients and I to, to discuss. So if somebody says, look, I'm so tired of being pregnant, I just, I want this baby out. Or if they say, like, my husband's being deployed and, um, you know, I want him to be able to meet the baby before he ships out, it gives us that extra bit of reassurance that this is a safe thing to do. So that's sort of how I, how I approached induction with patients. And then there's going to be a lot of people who do have medical reasons to be induced, um, things like preeclampsia, diabetes. And again, that's because we, we have evidence that says, if you stay pregnant for too long with those conditions, you're increasing your risks, usually of stillbirth and stillbirth is a tough thing to talk about because it's not, you know, that's not the the stick I want to be beating people over their heads with during pregnancy, you know, to be thinking about stillbirth all the time, but it unfortunately can happen. And so that's in the back of my mind for me to be worried about, I don't want everybody else to be worried about it. On the topic of how to induce people, there's a whole wide range. So, I talk to patients about at home methods, in the office methods, and then in the hospital methods. So, at home, you're right, we have the evidence. Um, There is an abstract about dates. I believe it's, we should look this up, but I think it's eight dates a day. I think Uh,
0: maybe it was eight, maybe it was, I don't, well, the one I read, I thought it was six. And can I just tell you, that was so hard.
1: Yes. I, I I
0: finally got to the point of like <laughs> as many as I can tolerate in a given day, and that is good enough because they are so sweet.
1: Oh my gosh. Right.
0: I can't Anyways. imagine eating either-
1: <laughs> six does sound familiar, but we should we'll double that for your listeners um but yeah it's a big number of dates but what it showed is that the the people who ate that number of dates daily um toward the end of pregnancy did go into labor on their own slightly earlier than people who didn't eat the dates we don't have good evidence like that for evening primrose oil but the reason that all or red raspberry leaf tea is the other thing that often gets talked about but the reason that these um Natural or food based uh, methods have come around is because you know, for centuries, we had an oral tradition where people noticed that maybe these foods made a difference um, in triggering labor and things like that. And the scientific basis behind it is that uh, those plants, Uh, some of the chemicals in those plants uh, have category of hormone called prostaglandins. And that's very similar to some of your own, our own human um, labor hormones. And so the concept is that by, you know, ingesting the prostaglandins in food form, maybe we can help soften the cervix or ripen the cervix. I talk to patients, you don't want to start anything like that too early. Um, We know that there are risks of of being induced um, or triggering labor if your body wasn't ready before 39 weeks. But certainly at 39 weeks, I think it's safe to try those food-based methods. Like I said, if you can stomach the six to eight dates a day, go for it. Um, There's a little bit of evidence for it. We don't have evidence for the evening primrose oil or the red raspberry leaf tea, but I think it's safe to do. And then in the office, you can talk to your, prenatal provider about doing something called sweeping your cervical membranes. We call it sweeping the membranes or stripping the membranes. And that involves checking the cervix to see if it's dilated. And if it is sort of sweeping the finger around the inside of the cervix to release some of your own natural prostaglandins. So we all have prostaglandin hormones in the cervix and in our bodies. And so by releasing those manually with that sweep, the idea is that you can trigger labor. What about intercourse? Does that help as well? Um, intercourse can certainly, the idea there is that um, semen also has prostaglandins. And so it's sort of two things. So having an, physically having an orgasm is the uterus having a contraction. And so you're giving the uterus a contraction and hopefully telling it to keep contracting um, and get things going. And then certainly the prostaglandins in the semen, again, you're exposing those prostaglandins to the cervix and maybe it'll help. Now, I will say I, I always mention it to patients and then, you know, everybody pretty much sort of gives me the look like, really, have you tried to have sex at 40 weeks pregnant? And I say, I know, I know it is challenging, but I, I get it. And I appreciate you saying that. I just I had to ask. Um, yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> so the, the next is C-sections. I looked this up before our call just to double check because what I find so interesting is there's things we hear and then we just start to believe them, right? Without researching it. And we just assume because it's, everyone's talking about it, it must be fact. And so, you know, the the quote unquote fact that people state is C-section rates are the highest in America. Actually, it's not. I think we were ranked six or eight if I did the count correctly based on data from, it was either 2018 or 2019. So I was happy to see that. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about, I guess, either where the rumor comes from, what what makes it high, because I know that I'm assuming they count in there, even if a woman decides they want a C-section. And I think in the book you even referenced, or when I say you, by the way, to everyone listening, it's the universal you of ACOG. (laughs) Yeah. And so there were references in there around different reasons why people would get c section So is there any myth you want to dispel or facts you wanted to add around that? Oh, my goodness, it's terrible in the United States of America.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Context and and frame of reference is is always the most important thing for everything we think about in life. Um, There are countries in the world that have um, much higher C-section rates, and that's generally driven sort of from two categories. One would be the um, cesarean delivery done on patient request. um, And one would be the cesarean delivery that maybe wasn't medically indicated, but suggested by the um, OBGYN provider. And I can't speak to culturally or societally why that happens in all these different countries, but it's certainly true that there are countries in the world with much higher C-section rates. You know, there are pros and cons to delivery both ways. Um, There are pros and cons to having a vaginal delivery. There are pros and cons to having a cesarean delivery. Um, and for most people, they would prefer to have a vaginal birth, and we totally support them in doing that, and we talk about the benefits of vaginal birth for both pregnant patient and the baby. But there are definitely times when a cesarean delivery is indicated, safer for the, for the adult patient or the baby, um, and there are times that the pregnant patient might say, look, I hear what you're saying, but I would like to have a cesarean delivery. And we should support that as well. After discussion, you know, there's always going to be risks and benefits. And the important thing is that somebody understands the decision that they're making.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I just wanted to at least bring it up because, um, you know, when I was reading the C-section part, I'm like you know, I got to check out this data about the US. Where are the rumors coming from? So I agree with you, it's context. And uh, maybe one day um, when I have some extra capacity, I'll do a deep dive research on how the data plays out. And uh, if anyone has a percentage breakdown on the types of C-sections or reasons for C-sections. Okay, two more questions for you. One is around folic acid. So it is my understanding that the data, well, it was two years ago when I spoke with the head of American Society for Reproductive Medicine. He was um, just leaving his post and another president was taking over and I'd spoken to him about methylated folate. So it is my understanding that a lot of the population has um, mm-hmm. MTHFR, one or both of the, the is it genes? I think is the the term. And as a result, they don't process folic acid properly. And so it's much better to take methylated folate. I didn't see, so I might've missed it. I didn't see that being discussed in the book. What I saw in there was so much around folic acid, folic acid. And I know when I'd asked him, the last he left it was the data was still coming, but it is leaning towards why not just give methylated folate. And I'm also noticing the prenatal vitamins are starting to be formulated that way, especially the newer ones that are coming out. And so um, this is probably more a question for you specifically, um, rather than necessarily the ACOG representation, because I don't know if you guys have discussed this, but I would just love your perspective on methylated folate versus folic acid and what women need to be aware of.
1: So you're right. I don't think ACOG has an official stance on methylated uh, folate versus folic acid. But I certainly have patients who who take one or the other and and feel there may be benefit again where I leave it is I think we don't have really robust data. It's tough because it's hard to do women's health studies and pregnancy and preconception studies for a variety of reasons. But as a result, we have very poor data um, for what to do around um, pregnancy and childbirth um, on a lot of topics. And this is one of them. So I don't think there's any harms in taking methylated folate. I think the, you know, at most you might be spending money on something that wasn't, um, you know, spending more money on a, because on a, usually they are pricier um, on a, a form of a vitamin that maybe you didn't need. But if you're comfortable with that, I don't think there's any harm to it either. Um, and hopefully, you know, in the future we might have more information. Okay. It's generally not something that I personally bring up with patients, but I've had patients who, you know, ask me about it or who have seen, you know, seen recommendations or talk about it elsewhere.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, from everything I've seen, cause I do have MTHFR and, uh, I was tested for everything with my fertility journey. And it, it's really interesting because people have very strong opinions. There are people who have very strong opinions, either direction and, you know, when you look at the middle of the road, it's really like, where is the data? And like kind of what you're alluding to, it seems like it's not harmful outside of the cost. Um, So just something, I guess, for people to discuss with their doctor. The last question is around disparate populations. And this is something that, You know, I've been starting to talk a lot um, about on the podcast or mention and um, really think about how best to handle on this podcast, because I do believe in sharing all the information and helping women be as empowered as possible. But whether you're in um, a specific race, financial position, ethnicity, the data shows that there are challenges. And I would love to get your perspective on... What is the most realistic thing that people can do? I mean, I think one, having this book as a reference is hugely helpful. And I know for some, even buying a book is too challenging, um, which is very sad. I don't know how much insight you have on this topic, but I at least want to acknowledge it. And I want to commit to the listeners that I am trying to figure out how we can help with influencing change. And for now, maybe it's talking about it and acknowledging it.
1: I think um, it's very important to discuss um, healthcare disparities, health equity, racism and systemic racism and how it affects uh, healthcare in general and absolutely very much um, prenatal care and pregnancy and childbirth. OBGYN as a field has a long history of unfortunately being built on the backs of people who are not able to give consent, who were in slavery. And I think as a... um, as a specialty, we um, have long known that and are starting to really acknowledge it and and recognize that we have a lot to owe to women who are never able to give consent or have a shared decision-making conversation with their providers, and, and that is very un- unfortunate. Historically, and when I say historically, I mean even up until the last few years, there have been numerous studies Um, on any number of topics in medicine where it was pointed out that being of a particular race or being of a particular socioeconomic status was a risk factor for some sort of outcome. Simultaneously, we know that um, race is a social construct. So genetically, from a DNA perspective, there's very little difference um, in someone of one race or another, you know, between Black and white or Asian um, or ethnicities, Hispanic or not Hispanic. Um, genetically we are all so similar and so how can we say that being of a particular race puts you at a higher risk of high blood pressure when on the other hand we say genetically we're all the same the answer is systemic racism so you know it is unfortunate but the system has created a system in which people get um, disparate care and unequal care and it's not right and i think that you know there's a lot of groups looking at this and trying to figure out how can we level the playing field and some of it is everyday resources like having access to food food security safe and affordable housing having a job that you know doesn't create too much stress because all of those things play into how healthy somebody can be as they prepare for pregnancy or are pregnant and how they experience pregnancy and childbirth. So that's all really important. And I think leveling the playing field with information, as you said, is great, and so that's why this book is amazing. You know it's not free. Um, it's fairly inexpensive. But um, it's also available from your um, local public library. I've definitely seen it there. And so that's a resource. This is a personal plug, but I'm, I love public library systems. And so you can get lots of good information there. The wonderful thing about the internet is it has really leveled the playing field um, from an information standpoint in a lot of ways as well. And so you know a lot of information is available on the ACOG website. It's ACOG.org, and up at the top, there's an area that um, is specifically for patients, and you can go there and get free information um, based on the same, you know, ACOG recommendations. And so, you know, as much as possible, and I also acknowledge that not everybody has access to the internet or reliable access to the internet. And so all these things are true, and we just have to do everything we can to make sure that people are getting equal and appropriate care and the best care for them. Thank you. And, and
0: you know, I acknowledge again, it's, this is like a whole other topic to be sorting through in the country and in the world. And what I am enjoying about asking this of the guests so far is each guest gives a really interesting tip and that's reasonable. Um, so thank you. I, I really appreciate it. So this is the official last question I like to
1: ask every guest. What is your greatest hope for women's health? I've been thinking about this a lot and um, and it's, you know, it's a It's a really heavy question with so many answers. And um, I actually went through uh, some of your prior um, episodes and and listened to what inspiring things other people had to say. And everything is so important. But my greatest hope is that every patient um, has the opportunity to work with a healthcare provider who meets them where they are and meshes with them. You know, ultimately, we're all individual people with individual personalities and pride myself on trying to get along with everybody um, and, um, and, and giving them the care that they are looking for.